Okay, we are on day 10 of Rockford Reading. We are reading Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Uh, okay. The Last Days of President Obama, February 13th, 2014. One day soon, the administration of President Barack Hussein Obama will come to an end and enter the realm of U.S. history. Eight years will have passed, true, but it will pass with a swiftness that is difficult to articulate. Barack Obama, son of a Kenyan goat herder and unsuccessful civil servant, will yield his place to another. And while history will have certainly been made, the stuff of books, museums, and presidential trivia, another kind of history, a quieter kind, will also have been made. Written more in song than on paper, the history of black Americans, those whose lives do not seem to matter, will record not the best of times, but far too often the worst of times. Unemployment, dropout rates, foreclosures, mass incarceration levels will show significant gains and paradoxically the deteriorating state of the national black community. Eight years will have passed and by every measure black life will become more precarious, more challenging, more raucous, and more brutal. Some will say that the concerns of black America shouldn't be his, for he is president of all America. But before all others, black Americans have been his most loyal constituency. Of all constituencies, why should those who are the most supportive get the least of everything else? What kind of political representation is that? Moreover, what other constituency would tolerate such treatment? Africans in America have had a long and tortured history of loyalty to institutions that do not reciprocate their support. Colonial governments, political parties, the army, state governments, and yes, presidents. Yes, even the black one. Symbols are powerful things, but when they are empty of substance, they become hollow, like now. You think that perhaps black lives might begin to matter more under the leadership of a black president. But have they? And that ends that passage. This is the, excuse my voice went up a little bit there. I think this is one of the first passages that's, that's not about, well at least not directly about the, sorry I'm moving this wire around. Hopefully this ain't causing too much of an annoyance. Okay, uh. But this is one of the first passages that is not directly about the macroaggressions of either police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I think reading that passage makes me think of the saying that I reiterate all the time. It is a saying from H. Rap Brown. Uh, the saying is... Uh, the system, and I don't know that this is his specific saying, but this is the person I've heard it from. But it is that the system, uh, excuse me, the individual does not manipulate the system. The system manipulates the individual. And how he described that and how I have interpreted that is to mean that even if you got rid of every white police officer that exists in the city of Rockford and you replace them with black police officers, as long as the system of policing remains the same, as long as the institution of policing remains the same and the ideology that is behind policing remains the same, you will continue to see the same issues manifesting uh, in, in areas where police are at. And so 
even though black people will now all be the ones in the blue uniforms, those police districts in Rockford, Illinois, specifically, will still be in predominantly black neighborhoods. They will still have quotas. Their policy will still put them in positions where they are more likely to be discriminatory against people of color and people in low-income and working-class communities. And that same thing can be extrapolated out to any political office. And so even though uh, the president of America was a black man because the system of America is still ran on white supremacy. Uh, the black man in office did not alter the living conditions of black people uh, drastically in a positive manner because the, the the institution that he is the president of is still ran and operated off of white supremacy. We've seen it was underneath the Obama administration that the movement for black lives, that the black the struggle for black lives that's taken place in the 21st century emerged in the manner that it has. Uh, Ferguson, Trayvon Martin, all of these, the majority of what we have been reading in these passages and have Black Lives Matter by Mami Abu-Jamal, these are macroaggressions of police violence and mass, of police terrorism and mass incarceration and racial injustice, which manifested while a black man was the president. And so I think that one of the things we have to understand when we are trying to combat these issues is that it will not simply be enough to have a black man be president or now what is happening is a black woman being the vice president to save or to help black people to liberate black people and far too often almost every time these people who have been put into these positions of authority these positions of power with black faces are only figureheads and are only symbolic and so uh, those are the first thoughts that I have while reading reading through that passage snapshot of black America February 16th 2014 the trial of a middle-aged man for shooting and killing a 17-year-old black boy after hot words over so-called, quote, thug music, end quote, that resulted in a hung jury instead of a murder conviction shows us that all is not well in America. The lives of black males seem to matter least in the United States. This has been the case historically and remains true today. This fact has such staying power because to white America, and far too often to black America as well, black lives just don't matter much. Some will undoubtedly dispute this, but what might have happened if it were an older black man getting into a scuffle with white teenagers about their loud music? Imagine a black man getting annoyed at heavy metal cranking out of a car full of white teens. Imagine the white kids telling out of the car, excuse me, imagine the white kids telling off the black guy when he attempts to have them lower the volume on their music. And when things escalate, the man unloads into the vehicle, killing one of those white teenagers. Can anyone doubt that the black shooter is going to get a one way ticket to Florida's death row? This thought experiment offers a sad commentary on the law, on the courts and on society at large. It is also a dim reflection on how black men are still perceived in America. White people fear black men. It may be deep and irrational, but that doesn't make it any less real. In fact, it makes it more so. A century ago, during the teens of the 20th century, excuse me, a century ago, during the teens of the 20th century, blacks, men and women, just a generation out of slavery, experienced a national wave of brutal white racist mob violence. 
Blacks were lynched by the thousands in what scholar activist W.E.B. Dubois called Red Summer. The violence went on with the silent acquiescence of governments, state and federal. In fact, in many cases, state officials assisted and cheered on the crimes. One of the triggers of the violence? Whites' anxiety that black men, newly freed, would seek white women as sexual partners. That psychology of fear continues today, now shielded by the illusions of politics, law, and entertainment. A black teenager mouths off to a middle-aged white guy, and the man doesn't see a boy, a teenager. He sees a black, and fear and rage floods his neurons. That's a snapshot of Black America 2014. It ain't pretty, but it is what it is. And then that brings us to the end of uh, that passage. I believe that this is the uh, the story of, of Jordan Davis that is being spoken about here uh, in the passage that Mami Abu-Jamal is, is reading. There's a, a, a great documentary entitled Nine Shots uh, about the murder of Jordan Davis in Florida. And again, this was a story that I found out and, and learned more about after the murder of Trayvon Martin. And it is one of the those, as we were talking about before the on a previous episode, that there are waves of these of, of, of outcry, of, of national outcry or national tension with these with these stories and with these issues. And usually with those waves, there is one uh, unique case or one unique incident of police terrorism, mass incarceration, racial injustice, one unique macroaggression that takes place. And the attention that that unique event gets usually is strong enough to give a platform to other events of similar nature that have taken place. And so Jordan Davis is uh, an event that I learned about because of Trayvon Martin. And it was an event that was spoken about and tied to a lot to Trayvon Martin because they both took place in Florida. They both were young black uh, boys, black teenagers who were murdered by uh, vigilantes, by racist vigilantes. And so those are some of the first thoughts that I have as we read through the snapshot of, of black America. And I think, again, one of the things that I want to point out uh, in this passage is how the institutions of these these inst- these white supremacist institutions, these white nationalist institutions, which uh, perpetrate these thoughts and these ideologies into the society, how once they do these things, once they perpetrate this long enough, eventually individuals pick up their cues from these institutions and the individuals will enact the same type of violence that they have seen these uh, institutions enact. And what happens is, especially in a place like Florida, especially in, in some of these uh, states where vigilantism and policing have been intertwined with each other historically, especially in, in, in aspects of race, what happens is the institution of policing gives cover to it. What happens is the uh, judicial judicial system gives cover to to these individuals who have enacted these things because they're enacting them under the same type of ideology that these institutions believe in. Uh, and so, uh, uh, so all right. So that's the uh, end of that passage. And then let's see where we at. The next passage that we have here is entitled Trayvon's America. This is, okay, Trayvon's America, March 24th, 2014. A youngster goes out for a snack, simply something to munch on, and a sweet drink to wash it down with. A man nearby sees him and, quote, suspicion, end quote, arises. In a matter of moments, 
The unarmed teenager is dead, and the shooter calmly claims self-defense. The cops come, summoned by a passerby who witnessed the deadly encounter. They chat with the shooter, perhaps exchange information in the way usually done at a traffic accident, put in a call to the coroner, and leave. Imagine a dialogue, quote, hey, imagine a dialogue, quote, hey, guys, it's self-defense, end quote. Quote, yeah, looks like self-defense to me, end quote. Yeah, looks like a good shot. Quote, yep, the kid punched me, end quote. Quote, hey, no biggie, self-defense, good shot, you have a good night, end quote. No arrest, no real investigation. Case closed for weeks. Now imagine the same events, but with a slight change of place. The shooter is an older, bigger black man. The teenager is a white rap fan who wears a hoodie. He's unarmed, and he's lying face down in the street. How do you think the cops would have responded then? The fact is, you know how they would have responded. And it wouldn't have taken weeks. It would have taken minutes. Who can doubt this? And what does this say about our system, our society, and each and every American who is a pixel in the picture? Trayvon Martin is just the name you know. There are many nameless, faceless Trayvons. And the real tragedy is, there will be more. The system isn't broken, it's rotten. And so, uh, again, this is Mamiya Abu-Jamal hearkening to the case of Trayvon Martin and asking us to, what, which he has done multiple times in some of these passages, to imagine the roles being reversed on the race, on the nationality uh, of the people involved in these macro aggressions involved in these events and one of the things that i do think is and and this may also makes me think of an an experiment that somebody said that they would do they uh, and i can't remember who it was specifically but they would give they would give speeches and they would ask everybody to close their eyes and uh, would ask them to imagine that they were black it would be a crowd of white people ask them to imagine that they were black and then ask them to uh, ask them if they would want to live their lives being black, if they would want to omit whatever race that they were, nationality that they were, and then be black. And what he would find is that nobody would agree that that was something that they wanted to do. And I think that that says something about the realities of being black in this society. And uh, that's something that, again, Mami Abu-Jamal is, is, is keeping at the centerpiece as he's talking about police terrorism and mass incarceration. And I think that it's something that is has to be at the centerpiece of these uh, conversations about police terrorism and mass incarceration. And I think that once you begin to become adequately informed about these specific issues, police terrorism and mass incarceration, it, in, uh, it, it informs you about racial injustice and it informs you about the system of racism that exists in our society. And it, it makes it so that you are, you become, uh, you become more, more conscious of how, all these different aspects of our society are hinged upon this uh, white supremacy or hinged upon this racism. And so uh, that again, and this, and one of the things that I think is also important is seeing how much of a, uh, one second, and seeing how much of uh, an importance or how much of a cornerstone Trayvon Martin in the case of Trayvon Martin is in the current struggle that we're in for black lives. And 
So I think that we have to we have to understand that since Trayvon Martin has taken place, there has been uh, the the two more the two most known or the two biggest national stories since then were since then were Michael Brown's murder and then the murder of George Floyd, and each one of those have were bigger and ballooned and became and more people became involved than did in each previous case. And so we have to understand, as Mamiya Abu-Jamal said multiple times, that uh, there is uh, statistically and historically everything says that there will be more. We will have more. And so we have to make sure that when we get to a place that more of these things manifest that each of us have built grassroots organizing and we have uh, grassroots mobilizing that can uh, push us further towards absolving ourselves of these issues when they take place and when they happen. Knowing that when Trayvon Martin was murdered, it elevated the stories and the events that took that happened around Jordan Davis and other pe- other people who were murdered in, uh, unjustly around that time. That when uh, uh, Freddie Gray, excuse me, Freddie Gray, that when uh, Michael Brown was murdered, that it elevated the stories of Freddie Gray or elevated the stories of Sandra Bland and all these other uh, uh, people who have been murdered in that same uh, time, 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 area of time and in that same, uh, in those same moments. And the same thing happened when George Floyd was murdered. It was an elevation of the stories of Ahmaud Arbery, the elevation of the stories of Sandra Bland. It led, so it led to when Jacob Blake was shot later on, uh, months later, that the platform and the consciousness was already heightened so that more people were aware of Jacob Blake's murder. So we have to continue to uh, do the type of organizing that is necessary for when another one of these waves of, of wokeness, I suppose, uh, arises, that we can be able to gain things from it uh, and move the movement forward some. Damn, that's crazy. Why is doing that? Oh, damn. All right. Damn. Why is doing that? I'm about to cut this. <laughs>